my friends, and welcome to episode four of You Don't Know Jack. I'm your host, Sarah Dimio, and this is the podcast following every single film in the career of the great Jack Nicholson. I've been a Jack superfan for almost 24 years now, ever since I was 12 years old and first saw The Shining. And now it is my mission to make you as much as a fanatic as I am. Last week, I reviewed The Broken Land from 1962. And you know, I just have to say a few more words on that one. Granted, Westerns are not my thing. But like I said in my review, The Broken Land did keep me engaged all throughout. And I spoke about this in my blog that came out the next day after the episode was released. That morning that I was writing the blog, early morning, about 4 a.m., I caught myself thinking about the broken land, just kind of going over in my head the dark twist that the movie takes at the end. And I found myself thinking about what life would have been like had I or any of my close friends or family been around in the 1870s. And isn't that the whole point of any art form, to get you thinking? So if you haven't dipped into the broken land yet, I'm going to get on you to go and do that. Remember, the best way to view it is on YouTube, where it's split up into five videos. Not the video that has the whole movie all at once. The quality isn't as good in that one. But now, on to new business. In the early years of Jack's career, while he was taking acting classes, he met an actress named Sandra Knight. Now, we're currently in the year 1962 in our timeline. The Broken Land had been released April 2nd of that year. And then on June 17th, 1962, Jack and Sandra were married. They would star together in one of the movies I'll be talking about today called The Terror. But before The Terror came The Raven. And just as a side note, Remember when I said that Jack was a busy boy in 1960? Well, if you ask me, 1960 has got nothing on 1963. I saw The Raven for the first time earlier this year, and I really, really enjoy it. This is a movie that I could watch just for fun, really. It was released on January 25th, 1963, directed and produced by Roger Corman, screenplay by Richard Matheson, and based on the poem The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe. The story is set in 15th century England. The movie stars Vincent Price as Dr. Erasmus Craven, a sorcerer. I think many of us are familiar with Vincent Price. You should at least be familiar with his voice. I'm from Bristol, Connecticut, And at the Bristol Historical Society, every year around Halloween, they open up an annual exhibit called The Witch's Dungeon. It's a collection of original props from old horror and sci-fi movies. There's this whole hallway with prop heads on display, like one of the apes from Planet of the Apes, E.T. wrapped in the white blanket as he rides in the front basket of Elliot's bike, And there's also the original head from the head spinning scene in The Exorcist. I actually have a picture of myself from about six years ago gazing at the exorcist head sitting in its case. We kind of look like a mirror image of each other. Don't worry about it. 
But when you go through the next door, they have a whole room dedicated to wax figures from House of Wax, starring Vincent Price. One actually wears the original suit that he wore in the film. And then there's also a figure of Bella Lugosi as Dracula, Boris Karloff as Frankenstein. And I have a very, very vague memory of this. It was around 1989 or 1990. Vincent Price visited Bristol. And from what I remember, it was a very big deal. The local news and the paper were reporting on it. And I kept hearing chatter among all the grown-ups that I knew. And they kept repeating, oh, Vincent Price is in town. Vincent Price, Vincent Price. And I tell that story only because my hometown has a very special relationship with Vincent Price. Now the Raven opens up with a voiceover from Vincent Price. Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered weak and weary over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, while I nodded nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. And he continues on, and this is over images of a silhouette of a raven, an ocean shore, waves, and then we see a coffin. Then we see the exterior of a castle. Then it's back to the ocean and the waves, then back to the castle. Craven is seated inside his castle. The winds are strong outside. They're blowing hard, hard enough to push the windows open. Then he goes into a dark room, and it's adorned with candles, and he visits his wife Lenore's coffin. She's been dead for two years. As he's asking her to come back to him, he's suddenly surprised by his daughter Estelle, played by Olive Sturgis, who has brought him a goblet of warm milk. Lenore was a stepmother to Estelle. In keeping with the poem, as Craven sits in his chamber, he hears a rapping at the door. He tells them to enter. Then he hears the rapping again. He goes to the door, and there's no one there. And then he notices the rapping is coming from the window. And when he goes to the window, there's a raven perched just outside, pecking away. He asks it, do you want to be let in? So he opens the window, and in flies the raven. Craven asks, who sent you to me? And he mentions his lost Lenore. Shall I ever hold her again? And do you know what that raven said? The raven responds, How the hell should I know? The raven, kind of a smartass, then asks for wine. He tells Craven he wants to be brought back to his rightful form. He knows Craven is a magician, so he asks him if he has any of the ingredients. Bat's blood, dead man's hair... Well, Craven's father, Roderick, was also a sorcerer, so he and the Raven go down to his father's old laboratory downstairs, which he hasn't gone into in 20 years. He looks through the shelves of ingredients, though it's covered in dust, and there be an occasional tarantula and other surprises to sift through. But he finds the dead man's hair, so he mixes the ingredients, and when the potion is ready, he offers it to the Raven. The raven sips at it. Craven says, you're not going to drink it. And the raven says, 
What did you think I was going to do? Take a bath in it? And he sips some more. He turns back into his rightful form, Dr. Bedlow, another magician, played by Peter Lorre, who you might know as a character actor from the original The Man Who Knew Too Much, Casablanca, The Maltese Falcon, just to name a few. Now, there is one problem. Bedlow has not fully returned to his rightful form. His arms are still raven wings. Turns out not enough dead man's hair was added to the potion. Now, the two of them together have such excellent comedic chemistry. It's old-fashioned and in a good way. It's clean, but it's clever, and it's suggestive. And you've got the elegance of Vincent Price working against the more traditional comedic foil of Peter Lorre, and it just comes together beautifully, I think. So Craven takes Bedlow down to Roderick Craven's coffin, figuring his father won't mind if he just takes a little snip. Like the laboratory, everything in the crypt is incredibly dusty. Bedlow lightly dusts the top of the coffin with his feathers. Craven says, oh, thank you. And as he opens the coffin, he goes to snip a piece of his father's hair. But his father's hand reaches up and grabs Craven by the collar, pulls him in, and says, Beware. So he questions, Why would my father come back from the dead and tell me to beware? Craven's father had been the Grand Master of the Brotherhood of Magicians and Sorcerers. Bedlow is a member of the Brotherhood. That's actually how Bedlow was turned into a raven. See, Bedlow had been at a gathering earlier that night at the castle of Dr. Scarabus, played by Boris Karloff. Scarabus is the current Grandmaster of the Brotherhood, who had a long rivalry with Craven's father. Bedlow, after a few glasses of wine, challenged Scarabus to a duel of magic. And it was then that Scarabus turned Bedlow into the raven. And most importantly, Scarabus doesn't require any potions or magic equipment. He can perform magic with just a gesture of his hands, meaning he's a very advanced magician. So now that Bedlow has been fully returned to his rightful form, he must go back to Scarabus's castle to get back his magic equipment. And he insists that Craven come with him. Craven says no. Craven never became a member of the Brotherhood. He says he prefers to practice his magic at home. Bedlow sees the painting of Lenore hanging on the wall, and he tells Craven he saw her at Scarabus's castle that night. Craven says that's impossible. His beloved Lenore has been dead for two years. He takes Bedlow down to Lenore's coffin. Now, this was another moment that made me giggle. When they're down there, there's this nice red velvet cover draped over Lenore's coffin. Craven and Bedlow delicately pick it up, each taking one side. They fold it evenly. Once it's folded up nice and crisp, Craven places it in Bedlow's hands. And Bedlow tosses it over his shoulder onto the floor. His attention was focused on the casket. And Craven ultimately decides to go with Bedlow to Scarabus's castle. Outside, Gramsci, Craven's coachman, gets the horses ready for travel, but suddenly something comes over him. He's not himself, like a spell is overtaking him. 
He bursts through the front doors of the castle, knocking Craven out cold. He swings a medieval hatchet at Bedlow and Craven's daughter Estelle, who had come down to see why her father is headed out so late. As Craven comes to with just a gesture of his hands, he uses his magic to knock out Gramsci. But as Gramsci comes to, it becomes evident that he had to have been under a spell by Scarabus. Gramsci goes back out to finish preparing the coach. And Estelle, after all of this, insists on coming with Craven and Bedlow. So Craven opens up the front doors. And who's standing there? It's Rexford, Dr. Bedlow's son, played by Jack. Rexford has been sent to bring his father home because apparently Bedlow's wife wants him at home. What about mother? What about her? She wants you home. Why? I don't know, but she gave me strict strict instructions that once I found you, not to let you out of my sight. But Bedlow refuses. He must get back his magic equipment. There was something so pure, I guess would be the word, about seeing a young Jack with Peter Lorre and Vincent Price and Jack just starting out his career. It's sort of like, look at baby Jack up against these two legends. And it's quite a moment to have that realization, knowing what a legend Jack is today. So all four of them head out front, but it's decided that maybe Gramsci should stay back. So what do they do for a driver? Well, Rexford volunteers to drive the coach. They open the door for Estelle, but she rather demurely asks, Father, would it be all right if I sat up front, meaning next to Rexford, claiming the movement of the coach makes her feel ill? And at that point, I was just like, yeah, you go ahead, girl. So Rexford takes the reins. Estelle is seated next to Rexford. Craven and Bedlow take a seat inside the coach. During this ride, Estelle begins to explain to Rexford what happened with Gramsci. And as she's explaining it, we see the same thing begin to overtake Rexford. Estelle says Gramsci's lips were drawn back. Then Rexford draws his lips back. Gramsci's teeth were gripped tight. Then Rexford's teeth were gripped tight. During this sequence, I was like, yes, yes, I know that face. That is the Jack that I know that we all know, I know that crazy face anywhere. And he lets out this yell and he pulls on the reins and the horses start running. The coach is bouncing around all over the place. Rexford is an absolute madman. But luckily, he regains his senses just as the coach pulls up to Scarabus's castle. After they enter the castle, Scarabus enters from the top of the staircase. He invites them all to join him for dinner. Bedlow is more than happy to partake. During the meal, Scarabus claims he and Roderick Craven were great friends, not rivals. Bedlow, chugging his wine, 
is getting fed up with Scarabus, so he challenges him to another duel. Scarabus gives in, returns Bedlow his bag of magic equipment. Rexford tries to stop Bedlow, but of course Bedlow isn't about to quit now. So Bedlow has his magic wand in hand, waves it at Scarabus, and the wand goes limp. Bedlow's only response is, you dirty old man. Bedlow goes back to his equipment, brings out a ball, and it begins spinning. Suddenly there's thunder and lightning, and Bedlow, of course, thinks he's creating it. But discreetly, we see Scarabus making gestures with his hands, so it's clear who's really in control. Right at the apex of the thunder and lightning, Bedlow disappears with just smoke left behind and a pool of red liquid, which turns out to be raspberry jam. Scarabus invites the remaining three to spend the night. Meanwhile, Rexford believes that Scarabus has killed his father. He saw him making those hand gestures, controlling the thunder and the lightning. So Rexford sneaks into Estelle's room to warn her. Then they find that Estelle's door has been locked from the outside. So Rexford, in his medieval garb and his hosiery, climbs out the window onto the ledge. And he starts making his way around. Bricks start to fall beneath his feet. And then he's left dangling on the side of the castle. But now it's at this moment that over in Craven's room, we see him alone. And then he looks over to the window, and who does he see? He sees his lost Lenore gazing back at him. Meanwhile, back outside, Rexford has grabbed a hold of a vine and climbed down the side of the castle. He goes back inside, and it's completely dark where he enters. He's suddenly attacked by a dark figure, and they scrapple. But it's Bedlow. He's not dead after all. So Rexford tells him Estelle is locked in her room. Scarabus has imprisoned her. But Bedlow is not done with Scarabus. Rexford goes off to get Estelle out. And Bedlow waits for Scarabus at the table. After Rexford lets Estelle out of her room, he tries to get her out of the castle. But she refuses to leave without her father. So she runs in the direction of Craven's room. Poor Rexford. All he can do is throw his hands up in the air and run after her. They reach Craven's room and they tell Craven they all must get out of there right away and that Bedlow is not dead after all. So the three make their way towards the front doors, but then Craven runs off to find Bedlow. And of course, Estelle runs after her father and poor Rexford, poor baby Jack. He throws his hands up in the air again rolls his eyes. He's just trying to get them all out of there. But before any of them can make their way out, Scarabus stops them by turning the front doors into a stone wall. In the next scene, Craven, Bedlow, Estelle, and Rexford are each tied to posts down in the dungeon. A guard twists a hot poker in a fire as Scarabus inspects his work. Bedlow begs Scarabus to just let him go, he doesn't care what happens to anyone else. Scarabus could even turn him back into a raven. So he says, really? Okay. So he turns Bedlow back into a raven. So Bedlow, now free, flees right out the window. The guard grabs Estelle, 
brings her over to the fire, ready to sear her face. Then the guard unties Craven from the post, but with his hands still tied behind his back. He brings him just close enough to see Estelle be tortured. But as this happens, Bedlow returns, comes back in through the window, and perches right on Rexford's shoulder. He begins pecking away at the ropes. Once Rexford is free, he's able to knock out the guard and free Craven, who uses his magic to stop Scarabus. So now, Scarabus and Craven agree to a duel of magic to the death. They sit across from each other. It starts out as parlor trick sort of stuff. With a gesture of his hand, Scarabus makes a snake appear around Craven's neck. Craven turns the snake into a scarf, removes it from his neck, tosses it at Scarabus, and it becomes a bat. Scarabus swats at the bat, and suddenly it's a fan, which Scarabus fans himself with. This whole time, Estelle and Rexford look on from the balcony as the raven is still perched on Rexford's shoulder. But the tricks escalate. At one point, Craven levitates in his chair up to the ceiling. He even waves at Rexford and Estelle. Scarabus causes Craven to sink, sink down into the floor, lower and lower, until Craven pulls an invisible rope and comes back up to the surface again. Craven sees his father's corpse in Scarabus's chair. And just like before, there's thunder and lightning, and the castle starts crumbling. But then Craven just holds up a tiny umbrella. Craven, as if we had any doubt, defeats Scarabus in the duel, and they flee the castle as it burns and continues to crumble. Back at the house of Craven, Estelle has brought her father his goblet of warm milk. Rexford waits for her outside the door. As she exits, Craven bids them good night, children, as Craven and Bedlow, who for the moment is still a raven, continue to banter in Craven's room. If you can't tell, I really enjoyed this movie. It's a comedy, but it's not your typical comedy. There's an elegance to it. I think to like this movie... You have to enjoy suggested humor. And there's also very much an innocence to it. It's definitely a general audience's picture. So I want you to check out The Raven for yourself. I found it on demand on my cable provider. If you have a smart TV, it will likely be available to you too. I believe you can also find it in clips on YouTube. And it can also be found on Amazon Prime Video. The Raven was the first of two projects that Jack made alongside Boris Karloff that year. The next was The Terror. It was released under three other alternate titles, Lady of the Shadows, The Castle of Terror, and The Haunting. I first saw The Terror when I was probably around 14 again. It was another movie that I was able to buy on VHS off of eBay, And up until this week, I hadn't seen it since then. It was released on June 17th, 1963. Produced and directed by, say it with me, Roger Corman. Written by Leo Gordon and Jack Hill. The terror definitely falls under the horror category. The story takes place in 1806. 
It opens with Baron von Lepp, played by Boris Karloff, in his castle, and he's following a trail of blood. Jack plays Lieutenant André Duvalier, a French soldier. We first see him on his horse, riding across a beach. He's lost. He's riding across in the blistering sun, and we see him grow visibly dizzy, and he faints. He wakes up, face down on the beach as the waves splash over him, and just off in the distance, he sees a young woman, played by Sandra Knight, Jack's then-wife. He calls out to her to ask if she has any drinking water. She doesn't answer, just walks off. He follows her. When she stops, she gestures down to a creek and says, clear water from the mountain. He drinks, and suddenly she disappears. Then we see her sitting on the side of the mountain. Andre asks her her name. She says her name is Helene. She turns and leaves again, and he continues to follow her. But then, curiously, she runs into some oncoming rapids. He goes after her, but he's attacked by a bird, to the point that he's knocked out. When he comes to, he's being taken care of by an old woman. The bird that attacked him is there. She belongs to the old woman. He asks for Helene. The old woman tells him the only Helene there is the bird. There's no girl there. Also, there is Gustav, who doesn't speak. That night, Andre follows the bird out into the forest, and he finds Helene out there. He was afraid she had drowned. She leans in, kisses him. And then she turns and goes deeper into the forest. Andre follows her, but he's suddenly stopped by Gustav. Gustav grabs a nearby rock and tosses it onto the ground, and it sinks. Quicksand. So Andre realizes the girl was trying to kill him. But Gustav, in a scratchy whisper, tells him the girl is possessed, and he points him to the Baron's castle. The next day, Andre wants to see the Baron's castle. The old woman tries to stop him, swearing there is no girl. But Andre must continue on. As he's on his horse, heading towards the castle, there's all kinds of ominous signs. Rocks falling from cliffs, spooking the horse. But he approaches the castle. He sees Helene in the window. So he goes to the front doors. And when Baron von Lepp answers... Andre identifies himself as a French soldier and asks for shelter. The Baron obliges and invites Andre to have a cognac. Andre asks who the young woman was in the window. The Baron denies that she exists. He shows Andre a painting of a young woman hanging on the wall, and Andre immediately recognizes it as Helene. The Baron informs him that that was his wife, Ilsa, who died 20 years ago. And he insists that Andre is the first guest in that castle since then. That night, the winds become strong. Andre's horse becomes spooked out in the stable. The wind swings the stable door open and the horse bolts. Andre sees Helene outside, near the cemetery. He calls to her to wait. He goes to his door, but the door is locked. And he hears noise, screaming, in fact. So he grabs his pistol. When he gets outside the door, he makes his way quietly through the castle. The painting of the Baron's wife is gone. 
and only the frame remains, much to the confusion of Andre. The next morning, the Baron tells his servant, Stefan, that Andre must leave immediately, but since he is a soldier, he must ask him to go with respect. But Andre confronts the Baron. First of all, he's certain that his horse was stolen, and he asks questions. Why was the painting removed from the wall? And what happened to the Baroness? The Baron reveals what happened. Years ago, the Baron was a nobleman, and she was the daughter of a peasant. They fell in love, but she betrayed him. He walked in on her and found another man in her bed. So in a rage, the Baron killed her, strangled her with his bare hands. So now he believes that Ilsa's spirit haunts him as his penance. The terror, in my opinion, is a great story. It reminds me very much of a novella called The Turn of the Screw by Henry James. But being that it is a B-movie, the overall quality is lacking. I think that with a bigger budget, they might have been able to do more cinematically. But this is old school horror. There's not a lot of gore to speak of. And it's suspense. It's about the suspense and the mystery. Who is this young woman? Is she real or is she an apparition? Is she good or evil? Why can only some people see her? Strictly in following the story, we keep questioning these things up through the end. And there is a twist at the end. Remember how I said that the Baron caught his wife and her lover together and then killed her? Well, that's only part of the story. The rest of that story isn't revealed up until the last minutes of the movie. So when you watch The Terror, don't expect a great epic horror, but follow the story. And tell me if that's not a story worthy of a classic place in literature. The Terror is in the public domain, and you can find it for free on Tubi. Again, that's T-U-B-I. Now we're about halfway through 1963. And on September 16th of that year, Jack and Sandra's daughter Jennifer was born. Jack also had his first screenwriting credit that year in a movie that was released that October. The movie is called Thunder Island. Jack doesn't appear in it. This is strictly a writing credit. He co-wrote the script with Don Devlin, produced and directed by Jack Leewood. The movie was financed by Associated Producers Incorporated, the same production company that made The Broken Land one year earlier. Thunder Island is in black and white. In the opening shots, we see long stretches of docks and fishing boats making their way out onto the ocean. One of the boats is owned and run by Vincent Dodge, played by Brian Kelly, who has moved down to Central America from New York. His wife, Helen, played by Faye Spain, and their daughter, Joe, fly down from New York to surprise him. Vincent has been down there by himself for about a year. He just wasn't satisfied with his life back home in New York, working in advertising in a job that was given to him by Helen's father. And obviously that puts a strain on his marriage and pretty much makes it impossible for him to be a father to Joe. And meanwhile, as Helen and Joe are arriving, a contracted killer named Billy Poole, played by Gene Nelson, is also arriving in the country. 
He was hired by Anita Chavez, played by Miriam Colon, to assassinate an evil dictator. When Billy arrives, he's not particularly concerned why he's been hired to kill this man, though Anita angrily insists on giving him the backstory, as murder for hire is not something that she does, nor takes lightly. But this dictator has been exiled to his own island, which is heavily guarded, and there's no way to get onto it without being seen. So Billy has to come up with a plan on how he can carry this job out. When he finds out that the wife and child of the owner of one of the fishing boats are in the country to visit, he knows what he's going to do. He wants to hold Helen and Joe hostage and force Vincent to take him to the island. Anita does not like this idea. She especially does not want to put the child in danger. Billy and Anita pretend to be a couple vacationing, and they befriend the family, gaining their trust. Billy tells Vincent he wants to charter a boat for sightseeing, scuba diving, just him by himself while his wife stays on shore. Now, little Joe makes a new friend her own age named Linda. Linda just happens to be the daughter of this dictator that the hit has been put out on. And when Joe begs her parents to let her spend the day with Linda so they can go see the private zoo on the island, Vincent says no at first because he wants Joe to be spending time with the family. But Anita, who again doesn't want the child in danger, cuts in and says, Oh, come on, she must be lonely for a friend. And Vincent reluctantly agrees and lets Joe go on with Linda. Okay, now the very next scene after that bothered me because very abruptly, Billy, enraged at Anita, slaps her hard across the face. I don't like seeing that in movies, men backhanding women. I find that kind of imagery very triggering and the fact that it happened so abruptly was bothersome to me. Now, this script was written by two men. I think a lot of women are uncomfortable or are triggered when we see violence against women in movies or television. I don't really expect male writers, especially in that time period, to fully grasp the visceral reaction that a lot of us women have when we see that in movies. Which is not to say that all female viewers have the same reactions, but I do think that most of us see that, and just for a split second, we have to take a breath, regroup. I do think it makes a difference when you know that it's coming. Because like I said, we didn't see this moment coming. It's as soon as the next scene begins. And up until that moment, we didn't see Billy exhibit any signs of violence towards Anita. So it's really a moment that I felt caught me off guard. But getting back to the story, I thought the action took a while to get into. I felt like there was a long buildup to the moment that Billy is on the boat with Vincent, Anita is keeping watch on Helen, and Billy finally says to Vincent that if he ever wants to see Helen again, he'll take him to the island. But I found that once we got past the buildup, then I was able to engage. We see the dictator in the crosshairs of Billy's rifle 
we see Billy hiding in the brush, keeping out of sight. When Helen finds out what's happening, there's a great moment with her character where she begs Anita, why are you doing this? But Anita doesn't respond. She just says, I'm sorry, Helen. What I like about Thunder Island is the way that it tells the story of a man's relationship with his wife and his daughter. He's clearly having an existential crisis, not happy with life in New York, wants to live his own dream of owning a boat down in a tropical island, but at the same time still wants to have his family at his side. And put that situation up against the imminent danger of a contracted killer taking his wife hostage and hijacking his boat. From a screenwriting standpoint, I appreciated that. There was depth to the story. It wasn't just this action suspense movie. I call it an impressive first delve into screenwriting for Jack. Could there be more character development with Billy and maybe the dictator and the others on the island? Probably. But for a low-budget suspense, they pulled it off really well. Now, Thunder Island is a little more difficult to find. I was able to find the DVD on Amazon. I haven't been able to find it anywhere else, though. It's not on Amazon Prime Video, but it is out there if you look for it. Another one of those hidden gems. And those, dear friends are Jack's projects from 1963. The man knew how to keep busy. He's been keeping me busy, seeing all these movies so I can do all of these reviews. Next week, we're on to 1964. Jack appeared in three movies that year, Flight to Fury, Backdoor to Hell, and Ensign Pulver. Now, I'm going to be straight with you all. I ordered the DVD of Flight to Fury on Amazon, And the delivery date that they gave me was the day before that episode is scheduled to be released. But it's Amazon, though, so it could come early. So I'm going to do everything I can to make sure I get you that review on time and still in chronological order. I'll watch it and do the review that night if I have to. So let's all send good vibes that that DVD comes to me in a timely fashion. Be also on the lookout for my new blog, which will come out the day after this episode is released. If you liked what you heard today, please leave me a review and a nice rating. Every time you do that, you're helping more people to find this podcast. Be sure to follow You Don't Know Jack podcast on Facebook and on Instagram. You Don't Know Jack is a production of Clovercrest Media Group. Visit clovercrestmedia.com and discover other great original podcasts. Until next time, I'm Sarah Dimio, and this has been You Don't Know Jack.